Good morning and welcome to Snoqualmie Valley Bible Church's Easter live stream service. Uh, it is a wonderful day. Uh, it's a day that commemorates the day which our Lord rose from the dead. Uh, we will see from the text today that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Uh, where we are in our weekly scripture reading uh, is the rebellion of Korah in the book of Numbers, and it didn't quite seem to uh, coincide with the Easter theme, and so I've uh, chosen a, a select number of verses from uh, mostly from the New Testament that I want to read instead of uh, where we are in Numbers. So uh, first, turn to 1 Peter 1, uh, chapter, uh, verses 3 to 5. And if you can't flip there fast enough, uh, don't worry. Uh, just listen as I, as I read. But 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5 says this. And these are, all, these are all passages themed on the resurrection. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope, here it is, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. All of that we are, Peter says, born to through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Second Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 15 to 21 says this, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the, the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Ephesians 2, 4-7 says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he, here it is, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And here it is again, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his graces in kindness, in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Isaiah 53, 
Don't bother flipping back in the into the Old Testament. It's only two verses, and you'd be flipping quite a ways. Isaiah 53, 11 and 12 says this. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured himself out to death. Don't let that that uh, uh, description of Messiah pass you by. After he has poured himself out to death, he will divide the booty with the strong. Strong implication. Resurrection. Because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Let's finish with Romans 5, verses 8 to 11. Romans 5, 8 to 11. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be mindful of your word, your word, which uh, beginning in Genesis three fifteen, and as echoed by Moses and the Psalms and the prophets and attested and affirmed to by the apostles of the New Testament, that Christ Jesus is the one whom you appointed, the one whom you sent, who died and rose again. Let us believe the scriptures when Paul says that Christ died according to the scriptures, was buried according to the scriptures, and rose again on the third day all according to the scriptures. Let us believe these words. Let us place our lives upon these words. Amen. I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. And we will dedicate this Easter service to verses 1 through 8 as we look at Mark's evidences for the resurrection. Evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. During the 80s and 90s, there was, uh, there was a movement uh, uh, called the Jesus Seminar, and it was one of the, the latest manifestations of the, the quest for the historical Jesus that really began in the, in the late, 18th and, or late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, uh, in the 80s and 90s, there was, a, there was this Jesus Seminar put on, and uh, it was dedicated to try to find uh, the historical Jesus. Let's get all of the religious propaganda, uh, all the things that conservative Christians have said about Jesus. Let's strip that all away and let's find out who was Jesus really? Uh, what was he really like? What did he really say? What did he really do? 
And one of the big names behind this uh, Jesus seminar was a, a, a man by the name of John Dominic Crossan. And he was asked, if the legitimate bones of Jesus were to be found in Jerusalem tomorrow, in other words, if the resurrection, as the New Testament uh, uh, says happened, if it didn't happen and there was proof, if the body of Jesus, if the corpse of Jesus was found tomorrow, would that destroy your faith? Uh, to which he replied, no, it would certainly not destroy my faith. I leave what happens to bodies up to God. Now, I want to pose this question to you. Uh, is it okay? Can, is, it, is it acceptable for us to go our own merry ways, walking uh, the Christian walk, talking the Christian talk, conceding that such a major emphasis, a, a major tenet of the Bible, as I said, the Old Testament points to it, the New Testament affirms it and defends it. If such a major part of the Bible is bogus, is that okay? Can we just go on our merry way as if it's no big deal, as if it's just a, a tertiary or low-priority matter? Well, not according to Paul. Not according to Paul. According to the Apostle Paul, it was not some tertiary, low-priority matter. It was a matter of vital importance. Uh, it was a critical matter. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 5, 3, I delivered to you, of all the things I could have said, I delivered to you as of first importance, namely that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried according to the Scriptures, and that He was raised on the third day According to the scriptures, Paul couldn't be more emphatic as to the central importance of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He would write later in verse 14 of the same passage, if Christ has not been raised, he's, he's presupposing uh, 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 that this just, this just pretend the resurrection didn't happen. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. And that's because the apostolic preaching, the apostolic message, and the faith of the early church was built upon the foundation of the resurrection of Christ being a fact. It rested not partially on it, fully on it. If Christ is not raised, our preaching, your faith is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, meaning we are liars because we have testified against God that he raised Christ if if he in fact did not if verse 17 if Christ is not raised here it is stating the matter plainly your faith is worthless you are still in your sins and then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished and we who hope in Christ in this life only here it is are of all men the most to be pitied. According to the Apostle Paul, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is no small matter. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ Jesus is the basis for the entire apostolic gospel. 
and its historic reliability is the greatest assurance that the believer has in his salvation. Think of some of those passages I read just a few minutes ago. First Peter 1 says that, that we are born again unto a living hope through the resurrection. Colossians 3 says that our life is hidden in him. In John 6, Jesus promised that he would raise up all who come to him and all who believe in him in the last day. That that hinges upon him being alive to do so. Hebrews says that he lives to make intercession for his people. The Bible says in numerous places that he sits at the right hand of the father so much of the bible old testament new testament rests on the fact of the historical resurrection of jesus christ if if this is bunk if this is something that the bible writers got wrong we are in serious trouble So again, I say the historical reliability of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest assurance the believer has in his salvation because it affirms that scripture is true. For that reason, each gospel writer writing from different perspectives, neither uh, uh, neither of the four, uh, none of the four writers are giving a complete exhaustive account of of the death, burial, and resurrection. They all, they're all giving details from their point of view, but they, they all coincide and give ample evidence. Evidence that does not contradict each other. Evidence that fits perfectly like a jigsaw puzzle piece. They each provide ample evidence that Jesus Christ really physically, bodily rose from the dead. And this morning we're going to look at three lines of evidence that mark provides for us in his gospel chapter 16 verses 1 to 4 we see the empty tomb the empty tomb in verses 5 and 6 we see the statement of the angel and then verses 7 and 8 we see the eyewitness testimony uh, beginning with the apostles and including many others the empty tomb the statement of the angel and the eyewitness testimonies Mark writes, verse 1, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. We begin 
with Mark's first line of evidence. Verses 1 to 4, we begin with the empty tomb. Uh, verse 1 uh, begins with, with uh, telling us that the Sabbath is now over. Uh, the Jews counted days sunset from uh, sunset to sunset. And the Sabbath began, we looked at this last week, the Sabbath began uh, at sunset on Friday evening. Remember, Joseph and Nicodemus were in a hurry to procure the body of Jesus and to prepare him for burial and place him in the tomb before the sun completed setting and before the Sabbath begun. That was Friday evening. It is now 24 hours later, Saturday evening, the Sabbath is over. And that means that the shops uh, in, in town open back up. And this gives the women the opportunity uh, they have to procure spice, burial spices of their own, so that, as he tells us, so they can anoint the body of Jesus. Mark says uh, this is Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. Notice these are the same women who he told us that in verse 40 and 41 were at the, the, the crucifixion site and saw Jesus die. They, they are now buying spices so that they might come and anoint him. And I wondered, did, didn't they see that Jesus and, or that Joseph and Nicodemus had already anointed uh, Jesus' bodies with uh, the, the very fragrant and quite abundant amount of burial spices? They, they probably should have been able to smell it because there were so many. But uh, notice, Mark told us that they were watching uh, watching at a distance. They were watching from afar, I presume, because uh, as John told us, Joseph and Nicodemus were secret disciples. These ladies who have been following Jesus uh, since the early days in Galilee, they don't know who Joseph and Nicodemus are, or if they do, they have no clue that they are uh, secret disciples. And so they are watching from a distance. They are spying on Joseph and Nicodemus, seeing what he is, what they are doing for the body. And, you know, perhaps they could tell Jesus was, Jesus's body was being anointed, but I would imagine it's not good enough for these ladies who cared so much for Jesus. It is not good enough that strangers show their respect. These ladies need to be personally involved. They need to show their final respects to the Lord. So they, so as Mark tells us, they, they went shopping. And having, having obtained these spices, again on Saturday evening, uh, it then transitions, the, the text now transitions into the early morning of the first day, which is Sunday. Sunday. Uh, these ladies didn't want to waste any time in showing their affection. And again, they're not anticipating uh, a miraculous supernatural resurrection. They are anticipating a corpse to be in the tomb. If uh, this is now the third day, uh, it is at this point where the body would have begun, uh, perhaps begun or very soon to begin to uh, to, to stink uh, because of the decomposition of the body. And so they are in a hurry to get to the body so they can anoint him while they still have the opportunity. Uh, and verse um, verse 3 tells us what they were talking about as they were on their way to the tomb. Uh, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And those of us who have been looking at Mark for a while, for a while 
we are very familiar with his use of the imperfect, uh, meaning this wasn't just uh, a single question as that was asked and a single solution that was given. This was, this was an ongoing uh, discussion. It could have even have been an argument. What, what are we going to do? Uh, this, this, this conversation dominated their hike to the tomb, which could have taken anywhere from 15 minutes to uh, maybe even an hour, especially if they're buying these spices. Notice that these are not strong blue-collar fishermen who, uh, for, for years of rowing on the Sea of Galilee and throwing weighted nets and pulling them up into the boats with, for, uh, when they're full of fish, uh, these are not strong men with beefy arms. These are, these are three ladies. What hope do they have of moving this, uh, as verse 4 tells us, extremely large stone? This stone was actually put in place. Its intention for, its reason for being there was to keep people from getting in. Uh, in that day, still the case today, there was the problem of grave robbers. And grave robbers usually uh, were men. And, and this stone was a means of protecting the body from being robbed. Uh, it was intended to keep people out, and that's what these ladies want to do. They want to get in, not to grave rob, but to uh, to anoint his body. So these ladies have a really uh, very real problem, a very practical problem in front of them, and they're going through all of their options. And each woman is is perhaps uh, uh, thinking of of plausible solutions and and picking which one is most plausible and, and making known her suggestions as to what they're going to do. And, and the other ladies are giving their feedback. Uh, this, this dominated the walk to the tomb. And notice that, notice that this very real problem, this very practical, reasonable problem didn't stop them from going. I like that. I like that these ladies had a real love for Jesus, uh, an impulsive desire uh, to do something, an urge to do something to serve him in whatever small capacity, by whatever means they had left to them. This urge, this desire to serve the Lord, to show him their affection, drove them to place one foot in front of the other. Uh, despite anticipating a very real obstacle, a very real, uh, you could say, rock-solid hindrance that was placed in their way. But nevertheless, they pressed on. Oh, that the Lord's people would press on when there are obstacles in their way. Oh, that we would we would commit ourselves, that we would dedicate ourselves with, with, the, with the resources and the gifts and the talents and the means that God has entrusted into our hands. Oh, that we would dedicate them to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and commit whatever obstacles come up in our path, commit them into his hands and trust that he will remove them. They press on. They arrived at the tomb. Verse 4 uh, says that, that, they, that looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. They, this, this puzzles them. They, they weren't expecting this. They have no clue how it happened. Now, they didn't know that the Roman soldiers had been placed there to guard the tomb. Uh, 
Matthew tells us that before these ladies arrived, there had been a great earthquake and an angel came in the earthquake and rolled away the stone and then sat on it. it Matthew said his, his appearance was like lightning. His clothes was dazzling like white snow. And uh, he doesn't even have to say it's an angel first to know that this is a heavenly being uh, uh, coming upon the scene. The guards see this angel. They faint because, for, for, for fear and for dread. Now, by this point, they have either recovered before the ladies appear and they have, they have seen that the tomb is empty and they flee or they are still uh, uh, comatose or they are still incapacitated on the ground and yet to recover. I think they are still on the ground when the ladies come up and they see the stone rolled away. They see uh, the tomb opened and they see, uh, I think, the soldiers lying on the ground incapacitated. Mark doesn't say any of this because it doesn't. It doesn't fit his theme. And again, he is the great abbreviator. He gives us the Reader's Digest version. But the the, the tomb is open uh, as the ladies discover when they arrive. They see the open tomb. And I have to point out, the tomb, the angel didn't open the tomb. He didn't roll away this massive stone so that Jesus could get out. We'll, we'll see uh, in later in the in the other gospels that that doors and walls pose no problem for him. He he appears at will where and when he wants, and so a stone really is no problem for him. The stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so that these ladies could see in. And what do they see? They see that the tomb is empty. Now, what the ladies initially thought when they, when they see the empty tomb, their, their immediate impulsive reaction is captured in John 20. John tells us that Mary Magdalene, one of the three ladies, uh, at this point immediately runs back to where Peter and John are. They are, uh, I would presume, in the upper room. Uh, and so... She she runs there and she reports in a in a, a, a kind of a hysterical panic that someone has stolen the body of Jesus. Again, they are not expecting or anticipating a resurrection. They think someone has stolen the body. And Peter and John run back. And John even tells us in a, in a very subtle way that he is a faster runner than Peter. Uh, but they run back to see for themselves. And Mark skips all that. Again, he is the abbreviator. But what's important for us to see is the first line of evidence for the resurrection is, in fact, the empty tomb itself, the absence of the body of Jesus. And this is important to note. The empty tomb is a fact that the that Jesus's enemies never once disputed. The empty tomb is a historical fact Jesus's enemies never disputed. Christianity would have never gotten its foot off the ground had the had the Jews or the Romans produced a body. That that would have been irrefutable proof that Jesus was a liar, that those who were espousing they had seen him risen were liars. That you couldn't have seen Jesus. Here's his body. Stop telling lies, but the body isn't there. The ladies see for themselves. The tomb is empty. 
The soldiers knew it was empty. They, they go and run to the, uh, uh, to the Jewish religious rulers whom they, uh, whom they had been appointed to by Pilate. The Jewish religious rulers knew it was empty. Because they're the ones who concoct this story that uh, that the disciples came in the middle of the night uh, when the soldiers were sleeping and somehow moved this massive stone without without awaking the soldiers and stole his body. That that would be tantamount to a, to uh, to eleven redneck yokels uh, storming a military guarded encampment and stealing a strategic asset. This just this didn't happen in the old world without somebody noticing it. The soldiers knew it was empty. The religious rulers knew the tomb was empty. And by the way, John tells us uh, three or four decades after the events, John tells us that the story that the disciples stole the body was still being spread about by the Jews to this day. And he wrote, we believe, sometime between 75 and 85 A.D., Nobody even remotely close to the time and the place and the circumstances of this event ever disputed that the tomb that Jesus was buried in on Friday, that witnesses saw his body being placed in, no one disputed the empty tomb come Sunday morning. Nobody The historical fact of the empty tomb is the first line of evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The second line of evidence is the is the explanation of the angel or the, the statement of the angel in verses five and six. And according to John's gospel, John tells us that Peter and John came, they look inside, they see the body is gone, and they leave. And but that the ladies uh, stayed behind to investigate. Uh, Mark tells us that these ladies now enter the tomb and they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe. And I'm assuming that this angel didn't appear for Peter and John because had they seen an angel, they would have uh, stayed around. I mean, they would have fallen with their face to the ground for fear uh, uh, but that still, they would still hang around nonetheless. But also, uh, they are not ready. Peter and John are not ready, and they, they still cannot believe in the resurrection. Uh, they still have the same dull, slow-to-believe, slow-to-listen hearts that we've been accustomed to seeing in them. John chapter 20, verse 9, has this editorial comment for as yet they did not understand the scripture, and you could say they still did not yet understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So they leave. Again, I'm presuming because the angel's not there. And once they leave, the angel now appears, and these ladies, now entering the tomb, see him. And Mark says the ladies were amazed. This is... This is a word that Mark that is exclusive to Mark. He likes using this word uh, along with a few others that he has in his thesaurus. And it means to be awestruck. It means uh, to be bewildered or greatly excited or emotionally overwhelmed. Um, uh, A modern uh, way to say it would be their minds were blown. Their minds were blown because something 
out of the ordinary, something completely unexpected, uh, from their perspective, something completely unprecedented has occurred, something completely unexplainable. And again, something I pointed out uh, in recent weeks, uh, supernatural phenomena and the appearance of angels and things like that didn't happen every day in Bible times. These ladies see an angel and they are freaking out. And this is the normal reaction when you look at when you look at the appearances of angels. This is the normal reaction that people have when they encounter angels. Their their minds are blown with fear and trepidation. They they fall over on their faces. They fall to the ground and become a, a quibbling pile of emotional goo. And so they are, again, they are amazed. And that's why the angel has to say in verse 6, do not be amazed. In other words, we would say, calm down, relax, don't be alarmed, count to ten and breathe. This reminds me of, uh, of, of uh, when Linus quoted in the, in the Peanuts Christmas special, when Linus quoted the angel in Luke 2, Verse 10, remember they appeared. What, what do the angels say? Do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Angels have to comfort those whom, uh, before whom they appear because they are so startling and shockingly, shockingly amazing in their appearance. And that's what happens when we encounter uh, uh, heavenly beings he says, you are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene. And in case you forget which Jesus Nazarene, it's the Jesus, the Nazarene who has been crucified. He, an angel is making very clear who he's talking about. Jesus, the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here in, in case you haven't noticed. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. In other words, look, here's where they laid him. You know it's where they laid him because you saw him being laid here. You're not mistaken. You have the right tomb. You're in the right place. Take a look for yourselves. Search every nook and cranny. Uh, look under the stone bed. and uh, uh, Look behind the bed while you're at it. Hey, there's a little pebble right over there. Be sure to look behind that. Uh, and, and look, take a second look if you have to. He is not here in this empty tomb. That is what you will find. He is not here. He is risen. Matthew says he is risen as he said he would be. Luke adds the angel asking them uh, rhetorically, why do you seek the living one among the dead? Why do you seek... The living one. Why have you come here uh, looking to find a dead one when he is a living one? And this is a mild rebuke. This is a this is a gently padded uh, admonition for the uh, for these ladies for their reluctance to believe what Jesus has openly told them. Uh, told the entire group, the men and the women, he has told them time and time again. And I, and I wonder, ha- have they been influenced by the dull hearts of the of the men? Maybe, but we know unbelief is a problem both 
both men and women have. It is uh, germane to the human heart. But they, they are slow to believe what Jesus has said openly, not in some back alley, openly, publicly. I mean, he said it privately and publicly, time and time again. He said, uh, he said in John 2, destroy this temple and I will raise it up on the third day. In Matthew 12, he said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the great beast for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And you say, well, Aaron, that was Jesus speaking, you know, figuratively. He's using symbolic language. Sometimes it can be really hard to really know what someone means when they use symbolic language. Well, listen to what Mark says. Mark eight thirty one. He began to teach them again, imperfect. So again and again, he began to teach them that the son of man, that's him must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and here it is, and after three days rise again. In verse 32, right after that he says, and he was stating the matter plainly. Not using figurative language. He's not being symbolic. He's not being allegorical. He's not speaking in poetic uh, imagery. He's telling them, Guys, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed. And then I will raise on the third day. As clear as that, he said it again and again. Mark 9:31. He was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Mark 10:33. We're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. There's even more details here. They will mock him and spit him and scourge him and kill him. And here it is. Three days later, he will rise again. Jesus said it time and time and time again, plainly. If he said it once, he said it a hundred times, hundreds of times. Here's the angel stating the matter plainly. Jesus, your Lord, the one whom you followed, the one who was crucified, Jesus, who was buried here, is no longer here. He is risen his statement, his, his explanation is the second line of evidence for the resurrection. The third line lies in the eyewitness of the apostles, verses 7 and 8. This line of evidence is found in the numerous men and women who personally saw the risen Jesus. Angel, the angel tells him, but go Tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. There you will, be all, you will all be eyewitnesses that he is alive just as he told you. Now that Jesus was physically seen by not one or two or even three, but this large plurality, this large group of individuals uh, publicly mind you, is the primary line of evidence for the rest of the New Testament. 
It, that is the line of evidence. That is to which uh, the, 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 the apostles and uh, so many, so much of the New Testament, that is what, it, that is what uh, this is the evidence that the New Testament appeals to. It's what the, what the message of the New Testament is built upon, rests upon. Acts 1-3 says this, Jesus appeared to the apostles alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. It wasn't just one appearance or two or three, but many times over 40 days. Uh, let's go back to the first day on the same day that that the ladies found the tomb open on the on the day of the resurrection itself. Luke 24 tells us that two disciples, we don't know who they were precisely, two disciples encountered the risen Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And that same evening, Jesus appeared to the twelve minus Judas because he's he's gone. He's he's somewhere else. And Thomas. Thomas, we don't know where Thomas was, but he's absent. Judas is dead. He appeared to the twelve minus those two. Eight days later, he appeared with Thomas being present. First Corinthians fifteen five says that that uh, Paul says he appeared first to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to catch this more than five hundred brethren. At one time, I'm assuming that is in Galilee. I'm assuming that is his uh, his ascension that we read about in Luke 24 and um, Acts chapter one. He said, Paul says he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain alive and most of whom remain until now, which means if you have questions, if you have doubts to the validity of anything I'm saying or anything you've heard, there are people who saw him who can corroborate everything you've heard. If you have doubts or questions, there are people you can ask to get the inside scoop. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, Paul says, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Jesus appeared not just to one person, not just to two people or three people. He appeared to hundreds of people, not just once, not just twice, but many times over the course of 40 days. Notice, notice that the angel uh, 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 calls out Peter. He specifies Peter. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Why, why did he say Peter's name? Why did he single Peter out? Well, what was the last thing we heard of Peter do? What was what was our what was our uh, what was the last we heard of Peter? He was remember he was vehemently swearing and cursing. I don't know this man you are talking about. He was he was denying Jesus not just once, not just twice, but three times. That was the last we heard of him. And, and speaking of Peter's denial, if you go back to Mark chapter fourteen twenty eight where Jesus was telling them they were all going to fall away, this is where, this is where the, the promise and the instruction to go to Galilee is found. He says in 1428, After I have been raised, there he's saying it again, plainly, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. 
I will go ahead of you. Uh, we we use we use this phrase today. Uh, you go ahead. I'll come. I'll I'll, I'll come ahead in a. I'll, I'll come behind in a few minutes. Or or I'll go ahead to Red Pepper and I'll get a table for us. This presumes you are going to follow me where I am going. Where I'm going, you are coming too. And so Jesus is going into Galilee. His disciples are uh, he is he is instructing his disciples to come there as well behind him. And some might have thought maybe even Peter himself might have thought that maybe his denial, maybe his thrice denial of the Lord disqualified him. Maybe he thought or at least felt like he was no longer welcome in the group. Remember, Jesus did say in Mark 8:38, whoever is ashamed of me, and that word means to refuse to associate, to 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 reject, to deny knowing. Whoever is ashamed of me in this generation, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. Peter denied the Lord. Perhaps Peter thought or some others thought the Lord was then going to deny him. But remember in Luke, Luke tells us that Peter, uh, that Jesus prayed for Peter, that he would, that his faith would not fail and that he would be restored. And so Peter needs to know he is still part of the group. Peter needs to know he's still useful to the Lord. So the angel graciously includes his name. Verse 8, they they being the women, they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna comment some more on this verse and the following twelve verses next week, but right now we conclude with these ladies having the same reaction that so many have had before. Fear, trembling being emotionally overwhelmed by what they have witnessed, uh, being amazed, unprecedented astonishment and, and, and either fear or some fear mixed with some excitement. This is, this is what gripped them. This is would not let them go. And so they fled. They fled and they said nothing to anyone, which doesn't mean... It doesn't mean that exactly at face value. What that means is uh, they didn't say anything to anyone besides Peter and the disciples as the angel instructed them to do. We've all had times where we have been told something. We have received news so vital, so important, so time-sensitive, so uh, crucial that we... We do not let ourselves be distracted or sidetracked from from anybody. We won't talk to anybody. We won't we won't stop anywhere. We will go straight to where we need to go, talk to who we need to talk to until what needs to be done is done. And that is what happens with these ladies. They they are told to go talk to Peter and the twelve to deliver them a message and they don't stop anywhere along the way. If if you had seen an angel wouldn't you want to tell somebody? Wouldn't we? Uh, wouldn't we uh, uh, bust out our phone and, and um, say something on Snapchat or Facebook or or Twitter? These ladies do not allow themselves to be distracted, and they go straight to Peter and the twelve. Now, we're going to look more at that verse, uh, as well as the uh, following twelve verses later this 
uh, next week. But here's the point of it all. Here is the point of it all. The resurrection proves Jesus Christ to be exactly who he claimed to be. Exactly who he claimed to be. Time and time again, Jesus said he was going up to Jerusalem where he would be rejected. He would be rejected by the religious rulers. That happened. He said he would be handed over to the Gentiles. That happened. He said they would treat him with contempt. That happened. We read it. And time again, he said, after he was killed, on the third day, he would rise again. That happened. It happened exactly like he said it would. The empty tomb proves it. The angel's explanation proves it. And the large number of eyewitness accounts who saw him bodily proves it. Jesus Christ is who he said he was. And who is that? The Son of God. That's how Mark began his gospel. He had the thesis statement, Mark 1.1, 1, 1, beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And everything along the way, every, every miracle, every supernatural healing, every demonstration of supernatural power and might affirms that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He does things that no mere man can do. He does things that not even the, the greatest of the prophets did. He is the Son of God. God the Father affirmed it twice, both at his baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration. The angels affirmed it. Demons affirmed it. Even a Roman centurion affirmed it. Jesus is the Son of God. Of God, And here at the end, the resurrection affirms it as well. And it affirms and proves beyond all doubt that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. He is the savior of sinners. He is the Lord of all. And the only reason that men will reject that truth is not because of any lack of evidence found in the Gospels. Not because of any lack of evidence in Scripture. It is because they do not want to bow the knee. Because Jesus rose again, those who place their trust in him have hope of the same. Paul would write in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth, and if, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead, he says, you will be saved. For believers, the resurrection of Jesus castrates the fear of death and gives us a glorious, steadfast hope. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones captures this hope when he said one Easter Sunday, This morning, as I look over this evil, sinful world, it does not depress me, because from it I expect nothing better. Whatever may be going against me, whatever may be happening in my own body, this is what I must expect because of sin. But though I die, I shall rise again. I shall see him face to face. I shall see him 
as he is, and I shall be like him, like him in a body glorified with every power renewed. I shall be living in a realm that is incorruptible and undefiled, a realm that can never fade away. That is the living hope of the resurrection. That is the message of this Easter morning. And that hope is absolutely safe and secure. The resurrection... Sorry, the resurrection itself guarantees it all. Every enemy has been destroyed. Christ has conquered them, every one. Christ is our forerunner. He has gone to prepare a place for us. And he will come again to receive us unto himself. We shall reign with him as kings and priests. We shall judge the world. We shall even judge angels. That is Christ's guarantee, and nothing can stop it. Can death? Of course not. For he has already conquered death. Can the devil? No. Christ has vanquished the devil. Can hell? Absolutely not. Martin Lloyd-Jones concludes, The resurrection of Christ announces that he has conquered every enemy. He has vanquished every foe. He has, triumph, he has risen triumphant from the grave. And neither death, nor life, nor hell, nor anything else can prevent or delay the coming of his kingdom in all its glory. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. May the sentiment that Martin Lloyd-Jones said that day be true in our hearts and minds today. Let's pray. Lord, may the truthfulness of Scripture stare us square in the face, confront any unbelief we have, and change us. Let us be drawn to the fact that you do not require nor call nor expect us to have a blind faith. You do not Expect us to have a faith that defies logic or reason. But rather, you give us evidences. You show us that your word is true. You show it by fact. You show it by evidences. You show it by, by the provision of multiple and numerous eyewitness testimonies to the things that real men and women saw with their eyes. May the things that they saw and heard and touched convict our own unbelief. Lord, I, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, anyone who, who still harbors a heart of unbelief, anyone who still harbors uh, an obstinance, a reluctance to bow the knee in their heart and to look to you and to place their trust and hope for eternal life, if anyone is reluctant to do that, give them a new heart. Drive that unbelief far away and give them and give us a heart of vibrant, abiding, strong, living, believing faith. I pray that as we are changed in this way by the scripture that we would be drawn to you. May we be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. May we look at him and see him as more beautiful, more glorious, more majestic, more lovely than we did yesterday. 
And tomorrow may our affection and our desire for him grow even more. May many today trust and hope in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.